Welcome to the Multitask. This is John. What's going on, guys? So, America has come to a standstill, so to speak, at least American news, because of a tragedy, a crisis down in Florida, which is uh, Hurricane Ian. And um, it's definitely devastating. It's, it's, it's causing a lot of damage. And uh, I'm not sure if we've heard, had any kind of numbers as far as lives lost, people injured, hospitalized, but boy, it's, 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 it's a huge mess. And it's, but it's, you know, it ties back to what we're doing because there are definitely political and governmental and policy implications that, that present us. So uh, what is your take right now on Hurricane Ian? Well, first of all, it's it's important to recognize just the devastation of what it has done so far. I've seen pictures. I don't know any numbers, but I've seen images, obviously, that is just total massive uh, devastation. They were showing, I was watching the football game last night. Uh, Miami was playing, and they were showing some of the damage in Florida. And it's, it's really sad, obviously. So our hearts and prayers go out to all those people. But um, my take is this is an opportunity to remind people that uh, global warming and climate change is not fake. It's not a Chinese um, ploy. It's not a Republican Democratic thing. Uh, Climate change is not coming. It's here. Um, Obviously, hurricanes have existed for a long time. It's not new, but more frequent, more wild, more, they're always bigger and powerful than they used to be. And this is just a good, important time to remind people that climate change is here and the devastation is going to be consistent and it's going to be um, more spread out, right? Florida, Texas saw a freeze over last year. Uh, Chicago saw a tornado for the first time in how many years? So these are things that we're going to have to grapple with as a country. And although I'm going to pass it to you, but we're going to make it a partisan issue in a second because it clearly is. But just generally speaking, climate change should uh, allow us an opportunity to come together as a country and um, focus, but we haven't been able to do that. So I'll let you kind of go and then we could kind of go from there. Yeah, one of the things, you know, I, I'm, I'm back to, to teaching at the collegiate level again. And one of the things that I talk to my students about is uh, when we watch video, when we watch the news reports talking about what will happen due to climate change in 10, 15 years, this city will be underwater, that city will be underwater. I think we are missing an opportunity. Cities are underwater now. Now, they're not permanently underwater, but you and I both know if once a year your entire house is flooded up to the, you know, the first floor uh, and you've got that damage, that your, your city does not need to be underwater. And when you think about uh, more and more with the frequency of the hurricanes and the, and the increasing severity of the hurricanes, uh, a lot of those worst case scenarios that we're being told about glo- global warming, in my opinion, they're already here. They're already here. We don't need to wait 10, 15 years for this particular city to be underwater. If Tampa, St. Petersburg, Lee County, Florida are are underwater, even, even if it's only for 48 to 72 hours, that's bad news. And understanding flooding happens all the time and that's part of nature. But if the frequency is increasing, if the intensity is increasing, and the damage is increasing, and we know that this planet is getting warmer, and we know that carbon emissions play a big role in that, then it's not just something that uh, can very easily be dismissed in the political space. It's here, it's real, and we need to act. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I'll take this opportunity to start it. This is a partisan issue. Republicans overwhelmingly do not believe in climate change or they believe in it, but not in a, in a way that's uh, man-made. They believe it's kind of this natural cycle that the universe kind of goes through. Um, Republicans always veto against climate change uh, funding. They always vote against anything that helps locally and federally with climate change. DeSantis in 2013 um, voted against Hurricane Sandy relief. And now he's, uh, I wouldn't use the word beg, but now he's asking for relief from, from Hurricane Ian, right? And Biden had declared this an emergency before it landed. He was already approving funds kind of before things were, were happening as they were expecting um, a kind of a destructive hurricane. So it's unfair to Floridians to um, expect their governor to continue to vote against hurricane relief for other states. And we saw Ted Cruz do this uh, in Texas, right? And and then go around and ask for, for relief for Florida. Now, I'm not going to make this a Biden thing, but Biden, kudos to him, didn't make it a political issue. DeSantis has been, if not his number one, his number two kind of biggest critic so far in his first two years. And Biden didn't even make it a point to point that out. He's just strictly being a good president that he is, being there for every single state. We saw that with Texas as well. Um, Puerto Rico, obviously, recently as well. Now, Trump withheld um, relief from California 2016 because of Newsom and, so, and it's a blue state, right? And we saw Trump wanted to withhold funds from blue states during COVID relief because the governors weren't kissing his ass, right? So this is a this is a partisan issue, and I just hope that I have no, I don't have full faith in Florida anymore. But I I hope that Floridians and other people in red states realize that they're probably going to get hit a lot worse than the rest of the country. Nebraska is not going to deal with uh, hurricanes that I know of, right? Um, although some of these northern states that are red are not going to deal with the devastation that Georgia, Texas, and Florida are going to deal with. So um, I just hope people understand that when they vote in November and vote in the future. Well, here's one of the things that's fascinating about the whole partisan element. And this is why it's great to be a Democrat for any number of reasons. Trump, as you correctly pointed out, went ahead and threatened to withhold um, aid during COVID. Biden is not doing that. Now, here's the best part about that. The way that Democrats are, as we believe all Americans, despite their political ideologies and whether they're this way or that way, that they're all Americans and all human beings, they deserve certain things. Um, Biden extending aid to to Florida and DeSantis accepting the aid and maybe DeSantis touring a a neighborhood with Biden is more of a liability for DeSantis and his base than it is for Biden. And I want to give you back to when um, this hurricane hit New Jersey and Obama uh, hugged and shook the hand of Chris Christie and he was penalized. Chris, not Obama. Chris Christie was penalized on the right for his embrace. And I also understand that may have also what, before Charlie Quist became a Democrat, that was also one of the things that undermined Charlie Crist when he was the Republican governor of Florida, was again, appearing with Obama. So the funny thing is, 
not only does uh, Biden not have the opportunity, nor should he take advantage of the opportunity to be a cold-hearted bastard, his being magnanimous actually reinforces what it is about Democrats and their compassion for everybody. And it creates a political liability, a political problem. So the question will be, and we'll see it in the next, in a week or two, Biden will make a trip to Florida. Will DeSantis show up with him? Will he not? And, you know, what will he say? And we're all, we're less than a, we're, we're, we're closing in on a little bit less than a month away from an election. So, it's going to be fascinating. Let's just say that. It'll be fascinating what the political implications are. And, you know, as we talked about uh, DeSantis when he was in the House and it came to relief for Hurricane Sandy, uh, I believe he voted against it. So um, this is going to be quite, quite, quite the interesting thing to watch. But, you know, I think it, it all boils down to whether it's Venezuelan migrants who are not illegal they're they're asylum seekers and that it's that's something they can do legally or people who are really suffering right now in florida democrats don't see human beings or human tragedy as an opportunity to exploit they see it as an opportunity and more importantly an obligation to provide for those who need assistance so um you know this will be fascinating to see how this plays out uh, in the political space. Yeah. And, and John, I'll follow up on your point. Biden doesn't have to take those shots, right? What I mean by that is there's Democrats who are currently criticizing DeSantis because he voted against hurricane relief for Sandy 2013. And then now he's, he's asking for it. Biden doesn't have to criticize him because there's other people around who, who could do that kind of dirty work for him, right? I think Newsom took a shot. Newsom's been taking shots at DeSantis, right? The administration and the vice president and the president don't have to take those shots, right? They're there to govern. And Biden knows. Like, Biden was there. Uh, he was the vice president in 2013, right? So there's um, there's some some history here with, with, obviously, Biden because he's been there so long. But I just think it's a good point. He doesn't have to take the shot. There's other people in an not in the administration who can take that shot. And I think DeSantis will hear that. I don't think it'll affect the voters. I personally think he's super safe in Florida. But um, it's just it's just bad politically. He had a couple bad weeks politically with the, the, the migrants, as you mentioned. Remember, John, correct me if I'm wrong, it was under Biden where those two towers collapsed in Florida and, and all those people had died in that kind of... Um, I forgot what the situation, it wasn't a natural disaster, but it was uh, infrastructure, right around infrastructure uh, when Biden was talking about it. Biden was there for DeSantis at that time as well. So this isn't, the, this isn't, the, the last few years for DeSantis hasn't been the best. We'll see if that affects him. I personally don't think it does, but he hasn't, he hasn't been a great governor. No, he, he's not. And look, um, to, to going back to the other political element is, and I guess, you know, we don't want to be opportunistic because there's still people suffering as we speak. But I think we also would be negligent if we didn't discuss the fact that you have some horrific situations, some horrific images all coming out of Florida. And as we move forward and knowing that one party uh, actively supports uh, climate change legislation to improve things and another party 
rejects any effort to protect our environment, you know, I'll be fascinated to see how this plays out politically. You know, maybe not this week or next week. We should we you and I be coming up with ideas of of all the drone footage we're seeing out of Florida, but you know, in some places might and where the races are close might going ahead just like with the issue of a woman's right to choose. Um, might the discussion of climate change and what just happened as it relate to Ian? Uh, might that factor into some of these races? Might it factor into the Val Demings-Marco Rubio race, right? It'll be very fascinating to see what, you know, what are some of those political implications as it relates to you actually have candidates who are going to do something or pledge to do something about climate, and you have some candidates who are basically uh, have always downplayed and never taken climate change seriously. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's important to tie back climate change into infrastructure, which Republicans voted against as well, right? Which is overwhelmingly popular amongst Americans because although the, although the, the hurricane um, passed through, now it becomes an infrastructure problem because homes need to get rebuilt, um, roads, bridges, et cetera, et cetera. So tied into not only climate change, but your infrastructure as well. The other aspect of this, I think... Um, is it's important to start talking about climate change. I think, at least growing up for me, John, I don't know how it was for you, but growing up for me, climate change was this idea that was almost unexplainable. Uh, now we know it, and I know it a little bit better. But I think, I think here's an opportunity for us as Democrats to not necessarily message better, but message more effectively to, to describe climate change in a much more realistic, palatable way to say, Hey, it's not that the hurricanes are going to stop or or like voting for this bill doesn't stop hurricanes, but it's this idea that they're going to continue to get worse and continue to get more frequent. And we have to deal with that now, not five years, 10 years, 15 years from now. Um, I think climate change is this idea of greenhouse gases. And once you get too scientific, I think people lose interest because they don't see how it affects their daily life. But um, the floods, the hurricanes, uh, the Texas freeze over, all that stuff is climate change. And I think it's an opportunity for us here to start messaging in a in a more um, simple way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, th- th- you hit it right on the head. And I think the other thing is, um, in addition to focusing on the actual climate change, I also think, too, knowing that we're going to have American cities for the better part of the next couple of decades until we either reverse this trend or get eaten up by it. Um, we're going to have um, a lot of American cities who have to confront these issues. I also think that there might be an argument for a better safety net so that, um, you know, whether it's, you know, whatever the policies are for natural disasters when it comes to insurance, there's got to everything that's happening that's going to happen with Ian, that's happened with previous hurricanes, that's going to happen with the next hurricanes, because we are in hurricane season, as relates to the impact on these communities and the devastation and the wrecks that it leaves behind. Um, At the same time that we're doing things where we have to fight global change, I mean, climate change, I definitely truly believe too, we need to make it so that whatever aid and assistance we provide almost becomes a little bit more automatic, 
right? So that, uh, you know, you may still need the, the Congress to vote on it, but let's not reinvent the wheel every time, right? There's going to be certain things, certain elements that everybody needs. And I, I wonder if there would be an argument for some type of disaster. I know, I know, and of course, what I'm proposing may already be in existence, but I've never heard of it. But I wonder if there shouldn't be some type of turnkey, you know, hurricane disaster uh, work, you know, work group or, 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 or framework so that whenever this happens, we don't have to wait for Congress, you know, so you don't have a situation where Ron DeSantis votes it down, votes against it, right? But I, I wonder if we can't make it a little bit more turnkey so that um, we can respond faster and provide the support that's needed. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's interesting because um, remember during COVID and there was a big, there was COVID relief that was hit past, but there was some kind of bottleneck in the state that didn't allow the COVID relief funds to hit the people as quickly and efficiently as we needed. I've seen, John, I don't know if you've seen this, I've seen on Twitter that people are, are choosing not to, I guess DeSantis set up a GoFundMe or, or something just to help bring money in for help. I see a lot of people telling people not to do that, not to give money to DeSantis, but give it to Red Cross or another organization for the simple fact that DeSantis has known to use public money for personal vendettas like the migrants and like other kind of political stunts that he's pulled, right? So that's even a bigger point to your, that's a bigger kind of um, agreement. And your kind of point is, uh, I wonder if there's a way to kind of put it out of the governor's hands uh, in all these states, because it's clear that if the governor has unilateral kind of um, authority to spend the money, they might not spend it in a way that's helping people. They might spend it on their own kind of political agenda. So maybe there is a way to streamline it give money to the states and, and maybe an added kind of idea of keeping it out of the governor's hands because I wouldn't trust DeSantis with, with relief money now, knowing what he's done in the past. Um, and so that that's just kind of a point to add to yours. Well, uh, you know, one of the things so that um, I think it should be known is there are kind of some procedures in place in, as it relates to that. So for instance, with a lot of COVID relief money, um, as, it, as you think about the money that came to Illinois, um, a good percentage of it went to the state and then the state distributes them to the counties and then the counties distribute them. But there's also some um, jurisdictions that because of their size, they get funding directly. So in addition to monies that for COVID that went to Illinois, I believe that there was some direct funding to Chicago there was, I think there may have been some direct funding. Uh, no, the, the funding for Cook County went to the state first. But there are some, you know, and that's just kind of a, an overall policy. There are some jurisdictions, New York City would be one of them, that would, you know, receive funding and then the rest of New York receives the money all through the governor's office. So there, there are some, some things, some policies, some procedures in place to where that already happens. But, you know, it's, it, it, it is quite the, it, it, it is quite a piece of work. But we will see. We will see. Now, um, going on with DeSantis is, you know, there have not been, at least at least publicly loud, there's not been a lot of migrants being moved, not from Florida, but from Texas via Florida, because he's got bigger fish to fry. 
Uh, what is your latest? What's your take on the latest as it relates before we got into the hurricane? Uh, what was the latest on DeSantis and his moving of migrants? Well, I know that there was a there was a political stunt to send them to Biden's house. It had got um, in Del in Delaware. It had got um, kind of sourced out by reporters, and Biden was prepared for it. And then all of a sudden, kind of the plan fell through. Later on, DeSantis claimed that it was just a bluff, and he was just trying to put pressure. But I think um, it did it did ruin plans for him. And I think he was trying to do that. So that's one kind of political failure. The second is he's being sued. There's a class action lawsuit by the the, the Texas migrants, specifically who he moved to Martha's Vineyard, um, who are suing DeSantis um, and this mystery woman named Perla who gave people a fake name. So I don't know if this is legal, civil. I don't know if he's going to get in trouble for it. But I think that the political heat from this that he faced, on top of some of these lawsuits and stuff like that, I think he might slow down personally. I believe Texas is still sending Chicago uh, a bunch of people, which is fine. We accept them and, and we'll deal with it. But I think Florida, or at least DeSantis specifically, will probably uh, quiet down for a little bit now. Yeah, it's, it, you know, the cruelty is not lost on me. Uh, it It's just so frustrating, so disappointing to, to know that people could just be so heartless. And, and, and let's just be honest, they're being racist. They're, they're being outright racist. They're going ahead and they're basically sending a bunch of brown people to places where they think white people will be upset by it. And, and it's, it's, I don't know, um, the, 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 the cruelty that the Republicans display is just inexcusable. And, uh, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it being tolerated. I, it, it it's just... Something needs to be done. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, usually people uh, will hold people accountable in the ballot box, but it seems like the Republican voters uh, are not only, are not only um, agreeing with this, but they like it and they want more of it. And the cruelty and um, the evilness is, is not a bug. It's the future. And I don't think certain people will help, be held accountable. I hope Abbott is in Texas. I hope DeSantis is. I'm a little bit pessimistic there, but... We have to hold them accountable at the ballot box. Each election is going to matter. Each election is going to be um, the most important election. If Beto had won, or if you beat Ted Cruz, maybe the Texas power grid would have never went down. Maybe, right? Maybe if Abbott had lost. like it, 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 We have to win them every single time. We can't wait for them to come in, mess things up, and then vote them out. We have to consistently vote and make sure they, that they can't mess it up, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that came out this week uh, was Maggie Haberman's new book. And it well, actually is not released until t- the Tuesday following the day that this pod drops. But we're getting the excerpts. And I'm feeling two kinds of ways. Um, I think the standard way that you and I have always discussed about the the anger and frustration we have with these people sitting on their books, sitting on really important information. That is something that just has to be stopped. But uh, I'm having a hard time saying I'm not going to read this book or support this book. Maybe I'll get it from the library. Because I think, you know, say what we want about Maggie Haberman. She's also going to give us a lot of information that we need. 
Um, and so I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure out, uh, and I'm trying to figure out what my attitude is going to be towards this book. Uh, what, what, talk about some of the revelations that came out this week that, that really impacted you. Well, let me ask you this question, Don, before I talk, do you think the juiciest story in this book was already out? There's a lot of talk about some of the stuff having having already been out, but I but I don't know. Uh, it's I, I really I I can't answer that fully because one I got need to know more about it, and I think the problem with Trump is that a lot of the stuff that has come out that we think we've heard before, we may it it, it might have, we may have heard it before, or it may just be coming from a new different source. Right, it's the same information, but a different source. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Yeah. The reason I ask is because it's pretty clear to me based on the excerpts that the biggest story she was probably going to have was the classified documents. And that happened already. And we know all about it now. If I, I personally think, and you know, this is a PR kind of uh, the PR angle I would assume that right before her book's launch, there was going to be a reveal, an excerpt that brought the biggest buzz to the book to help sell. That this week was that she knew about the documents. The John McCain ship Japan stories is is stupid and evil and all that stuff, but it's not like as juicy as anything else. So my... So I've had my fair share of, of criticism against Maggie. My only thing I want to say now is I just think it all backfired against her. She was holding all this stuff for a couple of years. Most of it's out now. There's nothing. Now, there, there will be small stories, the Japan story, et cetera, et cetera. No doubt about it. But I don't know. And then she got basically railed all week on Twitter. And to the point where the New York Times journalists had to start coming in and say, hey, you guys are piling on a little bit too much now. Um, so the fact that she's basically her reputation is completely ruined. And the second fact that, um, her book sales aren't going to be as good because we know everything. Um, I kind of just think it's poetic justice, her karma for the fact that she held on to what I could, what, what I consider really, really treacherous secrets that, that Trump had. So, um, I don't like it. I think German journalists should be held to a certain standard. I think she should be in trouble, not legally, but maybe um, be fined. I don't know if there's a union. I know the bar, like the lawyers in the bar kind of police each other, but I don't know how it works with journalism. But um, I just think it just didn't work out in her favor. And I, I just think she'll never be really accepted outside of that kind of uh, that kind of people, if that makes any sense. Um, it's weird because I think what I'd love to know about what makes a Maggie Haberman or any of the different media members respond is who they're actually responding to. What do I mean by that? I'm going to be a little uh, arrogant classes for a sec. Um, we're talking about Maggie Haberman. She's not talking about us. She's actually one of the most powerful journalists in this country, if not the world. Uh, she still has a ton of really good scoops. You know, even when, you know, even during the Bush uh, the Trump administration, there are times she broke stories. Now, we were not happy when she'd break a story, get us all riled up, and then she would go on CNN and she would downplay certain elements of the story, but she was breaking stories. So I say that all to say the thing that kills me 
is given who Maggie Haberman is, given the access that she has, given the platform that she has, I'm surprised by how thin her skin is. You know what I'm saying? Because you know the people who step up and defend her? Those are who people I believe to be her peers. But what I don't understand is, I don't know about you, and you're a filmmaker. I work in politics. I don't feel the need to respond to everybody. You know, I've gone through some stuff, especially with my principal client. Uh, and you see, I'm not responding to stuff that I know is blatant lies and everything else. Um, partly because sometimes when I respond or do anything, I'm giving it more oxygen, right? So what I've always been shocked at is not the people who defend her, because don't forget the people who defend her are in the same league with her. And if I were to, if, if, if I'm being fair, um, they've walked in her shoes. So they have a lot more sympathetic and I'm not going to begrudge them their sympathies. But what kills me is if I was in her position, I would look at my job, I would look at my platform, I'd look at my title, and I would look at the people who have my back, and I would not respond to the criticisms that are out there, unless some of those criticisms are coming from people whose affirmation she wants. Am I making any sense here? Yeah, but I think you answered your own question. She wants the attention from everybody. So any criticism from anybody gets to her because that's all she cares about is the attention. Now, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a line here in a very cautious way. What drives Trump and what drives someone like Maggie Haberman is not all too different. What I mean by that was Trump wanted access. He wanted to sit at the table. He wanted to, as uh, Lynn as Hamilton would say, be in the room where it happened, right? He wanted to be popular. He wanted to be liked. That's why he was doing everything he was doing. Um, and then as soon as he started becoming unlikable and Barack and Seth Meyers made fun of him, that's when it triggered in him that he needed it so much that he would go through the lengths that he went through. This is the same thing with Maggie to me is I tweeted at her this week that it's, it's not surprising to me because you have to question their motivation. It's pretty clear to me. She wants to be accepted. She wants to be loved. She wants to be Ted Koppel and all these historic kind of journalists who um, are in the journalist hall of fame, if that's a thing, right? She wants to be known as the insider's insider, but she only has access to one guy and that's Trump, right? I don't think she's in the white house briefings with, with Biden and stuff like that. So I, I say that to say, She's doing this because she wants the attention. She wants the book sales. She wants to be lauded in that way as Trump's biggest um, insider. There was a New York Times piece today calling her Trump's most important character, right? So it's this idea that she has the access that nobody else has, and that's what drives her. So none of this is surprising to me because she craves the attention. She wants to be trending. She wants the criticism because she knows it adds fuel to her fire, and that's what drives her. I'm making blatant generalizations and projections here, but that's what I truly believe is what drives her. Yeah, um, it, it will be fascinating to see what drives her. It will be fascinating to see how the book performs. Um, like I say, I I, I am one of the people who, especially in the Twitter space, does join in in some of the ha Haber, you know, uh, Maggie Haberman bashing 
but part of me wonders though is she's an easy person to dislike and i just wonder are there other people and i guess maybe the people i would compare him to would be maybe some of the washington post people like the phil ruckers of the world who often have who also have access but for some reason i do think that they ignore the criticism i do think that there's not uh some trolling would you agree that there's some journalists out there that uh have you know broke have written books broke broken things and they don't get the backlash that maggie gets but it might be because they move differently than, than maggie does um i would have to go back and look but post barack is my most recent kind of uh history with this there wasn't a scoop that was at this that's a, at the level of the scoops that Maggie has. What I mean by that was, I think there was a couple scoops about Obama yelling at a staffer or whatever what he had for dinner, or Bush choking on a pretzel. Like all this stuff that comes out after presidents leave, are not at the level that Trump has national security documents at his current state that she knew about. John, she knew that he had classified documents, possibly nuclear. Uh, secrets, and she held it. That's like a national security interest. It's not about getting the scoop. Like, your safety and our safety as a country is at risk, and she has held on to it. Now, I will say this. She might have known the DOJ was looking into it, and maybe so she's like, cool, I don't have to say anything. That's a possibility. I'll give her benefit of doubt. She might have said, okay, I'll tell them, and I'll tell them at a certain time. But my point is, a lot of the scoops that she has are urgent to the American public. The story of Trump going to um, uh, the hospital or in the middle of the night, she knew she held it. Uh, all the stuff that she knew that the American people needed to know at the moment, it doesn't matter what you knew on January 5th after January 6th. None of it matters because we already knew. So I guess the reason I'm getting so kind of passionate about it is because all the scoops of the past, I would again, I would have to go back and look. I'm not necessarily a historian, but have not been Christ-critical news that the American people needed to know for our national security. And in this case with Trump and Maggie, it is, and she's holding on to it. And that's what's frustrating. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is frustrating. Like I say, I, I am, I'm going to wait to see how I react to the book and how others react to the book. Um you know, and, and I will tell you, I have made a, a conscious decision. I, well, I haven't read any of them yet. I do plan on some of the books by authors that we don't want to reward, whether they're Trump administration people or journalists that we felt, you know, uh, sat on things for too long. I'm still going to probably read them. But, you know, between the local library that I belong to and the library on campus, I'm going to use libraries. I decided that's what libraries are for. Since I don't believe in book banning, I believe that books that uh, I want to read, but I don't want to show any love or support for the author, I'll just check out at the library. I'll bootleg it, <laughs> so I'll go that far and incriminate myself. No, I'll actually, I'm not interested in reading the Maggie book. I will be paying attention to the Twitter fodder, and I will be paying attention to the stories that I expect us to see on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. Um, I'm definitely interested. I just, I'll go on a limb and say, I don't think there's anything in there that's as big as stuff we know now. It might be juicy. It might be gossip. It might be funny. Um, but I don't know if it's going to be, um, and it might be stuff we don't know. Like the Japan story was reported, but never confirmed. And um, 
but I don't think there's a massive story in there that we don't know about yet, is my guess. I'm going to say one one little bit of pushback that I'll give you. Um, I would say don't buy into the Twitter fodder. Because Twitter fodder, and this is on not just Maggie Haberman, it's on issues that I love and I know very intimately. It's on issues I don't uh, know it very intimately. Twitter fodder is oftentimes the reflects the view or attitude of the person who or person or persons who tweet about it. And that's why I would oftentimes when you post an article and people retweet an article, Twitter will say, have you read it yet? Right. Um, because the problem that I have with social media and it's a problem with TikTok and it's a problem with the shade room and all that other stuff is too many people take somebody else's word for what is written and they're not making up their own minds. Now, granted, we do not have enough time to go ahead and read every article to be experts on every issue. But I think there's some other things though, that we might have to just in our mind say, there's here's three or four things that no matter when they come out, I'm going to read about them and, and, and you know, at least get a, a, a flair because how many times have you and I seen a tweet, seen a headline, and we get get worked up, but we might take three steps after that and read. And we're like, oh, and, and it's not as sensational. Or or there's something other there's something else that uh I that you and I feel maybe should have been emphasized in the in the article that we read, but they went with a, a salacious headline or salacious tweet. So that's the only reason why I would say I'm gonna be a little less trusting in Twitter fodder just because I don't necessarily trust I, with a lot of things. We too often rely on other people to tell us how to feel about certain things is what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with you generally in this case, I will say for Maggie, she deserves all the smoke. Um, I'm going to join it because I wholeheartedly believe that she held on to national secrets at my expense. And generally speaking, I agree with you. I think there's a lot more nuance in some of these conversations this week, particularly, I'm interested in making sure her book doesn't sell, and I'm making sure that um, I get to at least read uh, people's opinions. Now, I follow somebody like Jonathan Swan, who I think is a credible journalist, and he he defends Maggie all the time, right? Peers, colleagues, etc. Um, so it's not like there's one side. It's probably heavily tilted towards the anti-Maggie anti side, but... There's some people defending her and some people who say, well, without her, we wouldn't know. So there's there's some nuance there. But uh, for the most part, I just want to make fun of her and, and go at her this week personally. Well, uh, and I'm going to do something else that I don't normally do. And I'm going to go back. And this isn't really even pushback now. This is just perspective or context. Um, I think the other thing that we really need to focus on and we need to pay attention to with access journalists like Maggie is... We hate her access. We hate that she has access. But her access has provided us with some very valuable reporting. And my question would be, not, not for you to answer, but just in the general sense, my question would be this, is what price for access? And what do I mean by that is, I do think she goes too far. I can't stand... I mean, it's funny. You like Jonathan Swain. I can't stand him. And I also think he's a horrible access journalist. All right? Um, and I actually dislike him more than I dislike Maggie. 
Um, maybe it's just, maybe it's his Australian accent. I don't know what it is, but, um, the, the, the thing is we bemoan the access journalist and I, I am not a fan. However, but for access journalists and not just Maggie Swain, whatever, some really good reporting that we've gotten over the years is due to the fact that they do have access. And the reality is, is that you have Maggie who can pick up the phone, call Trump, call Jared Kushner, probably could call Ivanka and others in the administration. I do think that there might be a cost benefit analysis. I cannot, Maggie gets on my nerves, but there should be more, as we criticize her access journalism, maybe there needs to be a little bit of a cost benefit analysis. And I would love to, in an academic space, even maybe study, take a hundred of her articles that she wrote during the Trump administration. Uh, I don't know if we want to randomize them or what have you. Maybe, you know, 25 a year for each each year of his, uh, each year, or let's do 150, 25 a year for 2015 when he ran, 2016 and all the way through 2020. And let's just see if there was value in what we got. Her access irks us, it upsets us. I don't like it. I think she covers for Trump too much. I think she uh, oftentimes says things, but I also think let's be let's be honest. There's going to be some things that she and other access journalists have uncovered due to their access, and we should probably put a little bit more respect on their name. I'm not defending them. I'm just giving that as as a. I, I don't know if I'm being devil's advocate here, but I'm just saying that before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, there may be some value to how they how they how they move. Yeah, I'm, I don't. I don't disagree with that logic. I just think I disagree with with the access. Uh, I don't know if you know Adam Schefter got in some heat this year because he was uh, um, accused of being access journalism because he was basically pushing a narrative that the NFL wanted to push. Um, that's my fear with Maggie is it's not necessarily access journalism as much as it's you're just being a voice for him because he's not on Twitter. Now, if you came and you gave me the story as it was, then I understand that. But she often spins it to make the Trump situation look better. And she'll hold back really ugly stories because she doesn't want to make him look bad. So if she knows the catch-up story um, and she knows that he's done things that she won't report because it makes him look bad, you're no longer an access journalist. You're just becoming extremely biased and you're becoming a voice box for him and his point of view. Um, we'll get into the Schefter situation, but I'm bringing it back to kind of a general conversation was, um, I'm not mad at you getting access because I, and I know you can't push the bounds too much because you'll lose access. I totally understand how that works. For instance, there was a journalist during COVID, um, the beginning year of COVID, I should say when Trump was president that, um, I forgot his name. I, I want to say, I don't want to butcher it. It's SV Date. It was just this kind of journalist who in the middle of a press conference at the White House briefing during COVID, he Trump called on him and he said, do you regret all the lying? And Trump was so shocked. And he's like, well, what did you say? He's like, do you regret lying to the American people as much as you have? He hasn't been inside the White House press briefing room since, right? Now, what I mean by that is he had his one shot. He asked a legitimate question and he lost his access in theory, right? I don't know if he lost his credentials. I'm just assuming he hasn't. Uh, been around, right? So how does that work with Maggie? If she tells us the documents are there, 
she loses her access to Trump, so we don't get the stories. But then what are we what are we here? What are what are you there for? Are you there to be in the room or are you there to tell the truth regardless of what happens? So my worry is just what you do with the access because uh, I remember the first uh, Biden press conference when he was uh, president. It was probably two months in or whatever. And Caitlin Collins from CNN asked, got her chance to ask him a question. She asked him, are you running in 2024? This is two months into the administration. It was a stupid question. It was not needed. And everybody made fun of her that she took, there's the president of the United States with all these things going on. You ask him a silly question like that. Um, so it's just what you do with the opportunity and access is, is what, now if you hold on to a little story and publish a big story, I get it. But she, again, she's holding on to things to make him look good. And that's just unfair. Mm-hmm. Well, I, but here, let me just give you a little bit of insight. And this is, I don't, I know we don't want to dive too far down to Adam Schaffner uh, hole, but, let me explain one of the things that I think is um, it's controversial to outsiders, but to both people who deal with the press and members of the press. Um, I I think that there's not a lot of honesty about the way that people like myself communicate with the press. Um, Fadi, there's times in which I will actually um, be pitching a reporter on something. I'll give them a quote or I'll frame something, they're going to do their own independent reporting. And they will text me back a passage or a quote or something we said, and they'll say, how does this look? Did I get it right? What I'm telling you is that the thing about journalism, the thing about access journalism is the fact that, really, don't forget, remember I t- taught the class public relations. I taught public relations at Columbia College. It's relations, 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 relations. And we know that a reporter is going to report on what they're handed. And there's a lot of reporters I communicate with who oftentimes um, they'll send me a, a passage from what they're writing and I can look at it and I can agree with it or not agree with it. They're doing that as a courtesy. But sometimes the, the, the ultimate piece that they write still is something I feel was harsh against us. Um things, you know, because we want everything to be perfect and controlled and how we want it to be. I'm talking about those of us who are communications people in, in, in the political space. So I, you know, and, and I have some members of the media that I'm the gatekeeper for, and I provide a certain level of access. And I, and there's one reporter in general that I have a decent relationship with, but he's not on good paper with somebody that I work with. And so I don't pitch him anything on that one. Right. Um, and it's because of the way he treats her. And, and, and so what I'm saying is access journalism, it can be a bad thing, but it also is something that journalists should do because don't forget, if I'm representing someone and I get seven calls for interview, am I going to go with the people, the three people that I have a good rapport, good relationship with, or the four people who screw me every time? Right. So that's that's kind of an argument. You know, I've got to still deal with all seven. But if I have a morsel, if I have something that I want to give or something that, you know, and it's not that they're friendly. In my case, it's just that I feel that there's going to be a fairness there, right? I feel that this reporter is going to be very fair. This reporter, if, it's the, if we're dealing with an opponent, and if that one reporter has bought my 
or our opponent's spin or the people that are working against us about their spin, I'm less likely to return their calls. I may call them and cuss them out and tell them, how dare you, you know? But, and then the people who have always felt are fair to me, and, and the fairness is not when they write stuff that I like. The fairness is when they cover stuff we wish they wouldn't cover, but they do it in a manner in which I felt they were objective as opposed to just buying into the other side's very sp fake spin. So again, I'm not here really to defend Maggie Haberman, but I also think that sometimes the backlash against access journalism um, robs the journalists and the people they deal with of their humanity, of human nature. Because at the end of the day, I am going to go ahead and work better with people who I feel will give us a fair shake. And I think that's what Maggie was trying to angle for when it comes to the access journalism she had with the Trump White House. I, I promised that we weren't going to get stuck on it. Now, let's talk about the Thomases. Uh, this week, we found out that um, they're doing some very questionable things around their taxes. But then Jenny Thomas was like, you know, Clarence has got his tax problems, what have you. But hold my beer. I'm going to go testify in front of the January 6th commission. So what is your take on the week that the Thomas family had, both Clarence and his lovely wife, Jenny? Yeah, John, the most the, the thing I'm most interested in regarding this is that she was asked during the, the questioning whether she shared her views about uh, the election being stolen with her husband. She clearly admitted in the in the questioning that she still believes it was stolen. So if she shared that with her husband and then he went ahead and, and judged cases on it. That's the most interesting angle here. I don't think she's going to jail or anything, but that's the most interesting angle here for me. And I'm excited to see some of that footage if the January 6th. Uh, committee shows it in the next hearing, which was postponed, obviously, because of the hurricane. So I'm excited for that in the upcoming hearing. Right. You know, before we wrap, the one thing I was going to say is to whether she's telling the truth or not about Clarence, it, it speaks to the fact that you have uh, eight other justices, all the other justices, and I'm not sure if they're all married, but all the justices that are married, we don't know their spouse's names. And it's because regardless if they're Republican or Democrat, they move in a manner that does not put their spouse in any kind of political turmoil. And so Jenny Thomas is, is, is if, if she's telling the truth about not sharing anything with Clarence, and I don't necessarily believe her, she still does her husband a disservice because when one person in your household has such an important position, anything you do in, in any other space can reflect on that person. And I think she's got to be careful. So on that note, I think it's important that we wind down. So for now, this is John signing off. And this is Patty signing off. Thanks for joining us, guys.